0: I'm Ethan Devitt, and welcome to this podcast on water and biodiversity. Episode two of our six-part podcast series focused on the challenges of biodiversity loss and what actions we can take as investors to address it. Water. Water, water everywhere. The ocean covers 71% of the planet's surface and, depending on different sources, contains 66 to 80% of life on Earth. It may be the original World Wide Web. I sat down with Chris Goral-Barnes, who is the founder of the Blue Marine Foundation, as well as the founding partner of Ocean 14 Capital, which invests in technologies and ocean-related industries which are responding to changing consumer behavior, value chain pressure, and technological advances.
1: You know, you could say that the ocean is a bit like the physical World Wide Web. It connects and it carries everything.
0: The oceans are also the largest absorber and sequester of carbon, absorbing more than 25-30% to of CO2 produced. They are also a vital source of food and protein for almost 3 billion people. Sustainable Development Goal 14 enshrines the protection of life below water, but progress towards this goal has been weak and waterways remain under threat. These threats include plastic pollution, rising temperatures, dead zones, reef depletion, overfishing. As a source of most of the Earth's biodiversity, should attempts to address biodiversity decline start with the ocean?
1: In my opinion, and I think in many scientific opinions, protecting the ocean is vital for humanity's survival. The planet doesn't only provide half the oxygen we breathe and absorbs more than half the carbon, but it regulates the planetary systems. So ensuring that there is a healthy marine ecosystem uh, and a functioning ocean is um is the single most important thing we need to do to protect life on earth to mitigate the climate crisis there's a wonderful lady a lady called dr sylvia Earle, who's known fondly as her deepness because she spent more of her life underwater than above water and she always refers to the ocean as the the blue heart and the blue lungs of the planet um, so without it, with with no ocean, there is no us. Um, so it is absolutely fundamental that we protect it. And therefore, my perspective in terms of its role in, uh, if you like, in, in, in sort of the importance of the United Nations global goals, um, goal number 14, the ocean, is arguably the most important. But I think you can put it actually with, the, uh, with the three other sort of biosphere, biodiversity focused goals, which um, are six for water, 13 for climate, and then 15 for biodiversity. And those, those four um, arguably are the most, most important global goals or SDGs to get right from the offset, because if you don't have healthy biodiversity, you can't there produce food uh, you can't have a functioning uh, society without a healthy biodiversity. There's no oxygen, there's no water, there's no ability to produce food. And so therefore, without that, you can't have a healthy society. Without a healthy society, you can't have a healthy economy. And without a healthy economy, you can't have Global Goals 17. And that was put together brilliantly by two two gentlemen that, that I'm very fortunate to know. One of them is a, is a good friend, Pavan Sukdev. And uh, Johan Rockström, and they called it the SDG wedding cake. Arguably, you'd say that the oceans are the majority of biodiversity because eighty percent of biodiversity on Earth and eighty percent of life on Earth is underneath the oceans. So they are absolutely critical. There is that—that is where the majority of the biodiversity is in the planet, and and the oceans uh, and the coasts, you know, that provide critical ecosystem services. So you know, whether it's carbon storage, oxygen generation, then food and income generation, and then coastal ecosystems like mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses play an absolute vital role in carbon storage and sequestration. So we talk about a lot at the moment about biodiversity and its role in mitigating the climate crisis, sequestering carbon. There was a report that came out today that said that the dredging of the ocean, which is an, an absolutely terrible practice of dredging up the, the bottom of the ocean, which is destroying some of the ocean's biodiversity, that practice alone, from a fisheries perspective, is producing and releasing a gigaton of carbon, which is more than the entire aviation industry. Um, so in answer to the question, they are biodiversity and therefore conserving them is of absolute uh, vital importance. 33 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, so about, I think, uh, three quarters of the world's emissions in 2019 are in blue carbon sinks. One hectare of seagrass can soak up as much carbon dioxide as 15 hectares of rainforest. So the rainforest and sort of land-based biodiversity and ecosystems have had so much more focus than oceans one yet the oceans are absorbing way more carbon um that actually if we can manage to understand the science more clearly and create some systems to be able to uh, unlock the opportunity around blue carbon i think it can have a a, a huge uh, a return for for our investors but also a huge a positive impact on on uh, on the environment
0: Let's look at the risks to the ocean. One is plastic. 80% of all pollution in the ocean comes from people on land. And plastic pollution costs the lives of close to 100,000 marine mammals per year. According to some estimates, by 2050, oceans will carry more plastic than fish. It is also estimated that over 8 million tons of plastic ends up in the ocean every year, causing more than $8 billion worth of damage to marine ecosystems. By 2050, it's estimated that 99% of seabirds will have ingested plastic. And it's not just packaging waste that is the problem, but items such as discarded boats. 600 billion plastic cups are distributed worldwide every year, and only one in every 400 takeaway coffee cups in the UK are recycled. The packaging sector is the primary producer of plastic globally, accounting for 42% of the plastic produced in 2016. So is this then where we should start when we try to address the problem of water pollution?
1: The plastics crisis has acted as a as a kind of a gateway drug into people caring about marine conservation. You know, the brilliant um, documentary that the BBC made called Blue Planet 2 really brought the world's attention. I think when that was screened, it actually broke the or slowed down the internet in China. It was so popular. And that actually really focused on the devastating impact that plastic is having on the ocean. Of course, plastics is really a land-based problem. We need to solve it on land. We need to work out how we're going to reuse and recycle plastic, how we're going to value it better so we don't just discard it and and look at how we can stop it getting into the oceans which is the prime primary sources of the plastic coming into the ocean is nine rivers which i believe half are in asia and half are in africa which are responsible for about 60 percent of the plastic coming into the ocean so it's a terrible crime it has a huge impact on the ocean and we're seeing even more throwaway plastic gloves because of COVID and the masks, billions of them going into the ocean. But it is a, it's a land-based problem which needs sorting on land, but it is having a very negative effect on the ocean. The, the, the bigger issues the ocean are facing are acidification. And of course, that's because the ocean is absorbing such a large percentage of the carbon that we're rele- we're releasing into the atmosphere. So... Um, That acidification is destroying coral reefs, it's destroying marine habitats and it's making the ocean acidic and therefore making it warmer and hotter uh, and causing untold damage. Um, The agricultural and industrial runoff that is coming into into the ocean from badly regulated, badly managed factories and industries all over the world in the developed and the developing world. And then, of course, one of the key focuses of, of our foundation, Green Marine Foundation, is the devastating effects of overfishing. And if you put all of those together, we're, we're putting all the bad stuff on land into the ocean and we're taking all the good stuff out, which is the fish. Overfishing is arguably one of the biggest problems in the world. We're destroying the ocean through industrial, dangerous, extractive methods of, of fishing. And I think 90% of all Large wild fish stocks are now completely uh, overfished and depleted. I always think that overfishing, as a word, doesn't quite sum up the devastation it causes. It's so destructive on, uh, on oceans and therefore on the planet.
0: Overfishing what is it exactly? It is estimated that around 3 billion people worldwide depend on wild-caught and farmed seafood as a major source of protein. However, more than 90% of global fish stocks are overfished. It's estimated that the percentage of fish stocks that are sustainable have fallen from 90% in 1974 to 66% in 2017, which is poor not just for employment, but also for consumers. This is not just a problem in the oceans, but also in inland fisheries. Freshwater fisheries are a vital contribution to biodiversity, and the fisheries for many of these species provide an essential source of food and livelihoods for people around the world. More than 40% of known fish species are found in freshwater, even though freshwater habitat covers less than 1% of the globe. However, just like other freshwater species, freshwater fish are highly threatened. Some studies suggest that one in three freshwater species of vertebrates, invertebrates and plants are threatened with extinction. Fishing is, of course, an integral part of the blue economy. But what exactly is the blue economy? Let's hear how Chris defines this.
1: The blue economy its an emerging concept which encourages better stewardship of our ocean or indeed our blue resources. We like to say at uh, both Blue Marine Foundation and Ocean 14 Capital, um, we, need a, we need a sustainable and a regenerative blue economy. It's not just about having a blue economy. It's about how do we make this regenerative um, so the blue economy, it's, it is vast. It's nearly a $3 trillion economy, you know, of which $275 billion is fishing, $220 billion is aquaculture. It employs 200 million people. If you think of 71% of the surface of the earth is ocean. I think something like 60, 70% of the entire population live within 10 miles of the ocean. So you've got not only the industries that are on the ocean, such as fishing and shipping um but also all the coastal communities and the tourism that comes from the ocean so it's a vast economy that has been largely overlooked a bit like marine conservation it's ripe for innovation and advancement and within that it needs to be a sustainable and a regenerative economy because of all those businesses two-thirds of them rely on the ocean being healthy and functioning You're not going to have 270 billion fishing industry if there aren't any fish and you're not going to have tourists going to the coast and wanting to be in the sea if the sea is full of algae and plastic pollution because we haven't managed to sustain it or to clean it. So it's absolutely vital that we address improving the health of the ocean and driving the sustainability as well as at the same time improving the the economics of these um, ocean-related businesses and it's a a huge opportunity where now there is only now really the realisation of the role the ocean plays in mitigating the climate crisis and how vital it is to have a healthy ocean and the understanding of the vastness and the importance of the blue economy.
0: I asked Chris whether the fact that global movement towards these goals was not synchronous led to there being leaders and laggards in this respect.
1: Having worked in in marine conservation now for, um, well, probably now about 12 years from starting on the journey of executive producing The End of the Line, the film, which sort of was the first documentary to communicate the devastating effects of overfishing, had a huge impact on changing behaviour to to the foundation. Um, In that journey of over a decade, it's only really now there being a kind of a focus and an effort on 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 marine conservation and i think that the uk government have been very forward thinking and uh, have have acted very well in looking at their overseas territories and declaring a sort of a blue belt of protecting a huge area of of the british overseas territories and we're now seeing with the with the biden and the kerry administration john kerry you know arguably the most important man in the world as the climate envoy for the us you know has been an ocean advocate for many years um and you know he he said last month you cannot stop the climate crisis without solving the ocean crisis and you can't solve the ocean crisis without solving the climate crisis so with that tailwind and the strength of the us influence and their drive on climate and that role seeing that there is there is no difference between the climate crisis and the ocean crisis we was we're seeing a renewed effort and i think that will really come to fruition at cop this year, where we're hopeful it will be a blue cop and there will be a big focus on ocean. And you're seeing some countries agree to, to, to move to what is necessary of, of, of having 30% of their ocean protected. Um, so I think things are looking, are looking a lot better than they, they have been.
0: Chris is unusual in that he works both at a foundation and at a fund. I asked Chris first about his work that he is doing at his foundation.
1: The foundation that I co-founded uh, with um, George Duffield and Charles Clover, my two co-founders, is, is called the Blue Marine Foundation. Um, and it's been um, unbelievably successful over the last decade. It's it's focused, has been pretty uh, laser focused on uh, creating marine protected areas and, um, and delivering on uh, innovations in sustainable uh, fishing and fisheries. Um, We had a bold target when we set out 11 years ago, which was to help facilitate and protect 10% of the world's ocean by 2020 and uh, 30% by 2030, which is in line with the the United Nations targets. Um, The Blue Marine Foundation has has done some incredible things with marine protected areas. We we worked um, when we first started and raised the money and helped broker the deal with the Bertarelli Foundation and the UK government to create what was then the largest marine protected area in the world at the Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean. We more recently helped broker uh, the deal uh, to create the largest marine reserve in the Atlantic with a consortium of of great NGO partners, which was Tristan de Kuna in the Atlantic, where we we provided the final money and helped the, the, the negotiations with the UK government. And we've just uh, we just funded the largest no take zone in the Mediterranean. So we've created marine protected areas um, all over the world. We've developed new models of sustainable fishing. And the foundation has about 47, I think, 50 projects all over the world from vast MPAs, which are up to 750,000 square kilometers in size to more sort of nimble, agile projects of protecting individual species in the Maldives or, uh, or creating what is really a world first, which is bringing local fishermen and conservationists together to create win-win models whereby you can enable the fishermen to make more money catching less fish. You can conserve the ocean, but actually ensure that these small-scale fishermen have an economy and a livelihood, and that's something that we're very, very focused on. We 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 support the the, the local smaller fishermen, not the big industrial trawlers that are destroying the ocean. Um, and the, the the foundation's been very successful. Uh, it's obviously philanthropic. Philanthropy has its limits. The the the, 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 the problem in the ocean is so vast, um, but again, the opportunity is so is so big
0: as well as at his fund focused on nature-based solutions to address the water crisis.
1: We launched Ocean 14 Capital about a year ago now, 14 as in Global 14, which is a, an impact fund, and it really is an impact fund. A large percentage of our performance fee is is, is linked to our impact KPIs. We have a whole impact team, and we will be investing in uh, existing industry businesses that we believe can become better businesses in both how they improve the ocean's health become more sustainable and make attractive returns for investors and I, and I think we're at a really exciting pivotal time where the impact revolution promises to be as 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 kind of revolutionary as the tech revolution in the decade that preceded it investors and governments now are looking for this and wanting to support funds that are, are going to have a very positive effect on the environment and make money for their investors and ocean 14 that's that's something that we've built
0: what i found surprising and actually gave me some hope is the tremendous potential for regeneration that the oceans have
1: the crisis is in the ocean is the biggest solvable problem in the world because it is it's solvable. We know what we want to do. The the ocean has an amazing propensity to recover, to come back to life. And we're very fortunate to have seen that firsthand. If you get an area of ocean that has been overfished and, and destroyed, and then you protect it, you create a marine protected area, It it comes back to life. You see the fish stocks come back to life. If you're not fishing them and taking them out, they replenish. And when the fish stocks come back to life and they have a positive impact on their biodiversity, on improving the coral and the biodiversity comes back and you see an area replenish. So, you know, it is is fixable. If we can protect 30% of the world's ocean to create large scale marine protected areas that there isn't fishing, These areas are protected. They can have a massive impact on the health of the ocean. And to ensure that 70 percent, the remainder of the ocean, is sustainably managed and fished sustainably and responsibly, we can really, really bring the ocean uh, health back to life. So it's solvable. We need to do it now. We need to get on with it. But it is something that that is achievable. And so it is arguably the, the biggest solvable problem in the world.
0: And sometimes this source of regeneration can come from a surprising area. According to a new study from the IMF, the average great whale sequesters 33 tonnes of CO2 during its lifetime. By comparison, an average tree absorbs up to 48 pounds of CO2 per year. Whales are also useful because their presence promotes the growth of phytoplankton microscopic marine creatures that contribute at least 50% of oxygen to our atmosphere by capturing around 40% of all CO2 produced. This is equivalent to the carbon capture potential of four Amazon forests. The same study says that if whales were allowed to return to their pre-whaling population of 4.5 million from 1.3 million today, it would do wonders for the environment. Even a 1% increase in phytoplankton productivity due to whale activity could capture hundreds of millions of tonnes of additional CO2 per year, which is equivalent to the sudden appearance of 2 billion mature trees. So say the authors of the report. Let's move now to speak with Will Pomeroy, lead engager at Federated Hermes, SDG Engagement and Small and Mid-Cap Equities Fund, to speak with him about the type of engagement that we can now do in order to address biodiversity loss. Will wrote the Trawling for Trash research paper at the end of 2019 which depicted the impact of land-based pollution, in particular plastics, on water, and how he was engaging with companies to address it. It is encouraging to see an increased awareness of the need to take action.
2: We have seen a number of regulatory interventions coming from policy bodies, in particular the European Commission here in Europe, where the the single-use plastic directive, for example, is coming into force over the next few years, and that will have some pretty significant impacts on the, I guess, the plastics littering issue and, and And the plastics, therefore, contribution to um, marine pollution.
0: As some of the key sources of pollution in water are objects such as plastics, drinks bottles, plastic bottle caps, straws and stirrers and takeaway containers. These are areas in which Will can engage with companies to address their production of plastics.
2: So we have a US caps and dispenser company that we've been engaging and speaking with. And they entered into an exclusive partnership with a, a Japanese peer back in 2019 now, so soon after the, the note that we published, to cross-licence their technology with the technology from the, the Japanese company, where they both developed, I guess, consumer-friendly, um, tethered cap solutions for a whole range of um, beverages that are, are sold today that will, add, will make very little difference to the, I guess, the, the filling apparatus that, that's in place in most um, production lines, but will have a meaningful impact if taken up by the market in terms of the the littering challenge. So we we hope to see more market penetration from those solutions in the coming years.
0: It can also stretch to take away cups.
2: Paper cups, you know, we we all buy, certainly in normal times, all very regularly bought our our coffee and took it away from the the site and then struggled to to understand what we were supposed to do with that cup in terms of responsible disposal thereafter. Um, So if we we went back a few years, it was very commonly cited that paper cups, the the recycling rate was around 1 in 400, so very, very, very low. Um, The industry began to then work much more collaboratively together in about 2018, and and that recycling rate increased from 1 in 400 to 1 in 25. And I think as of the end of 2019, that was looking at around 1 in 12 in terms of of recycling rate. So a a pretty astronomical increase. But even then, I think it's worth stepping back and reflecting that the reality was people were buying 7 million cups a day in in normal circumstances. That's about 2.5 billion a year. So, when you're thinking of one in twelve being recycled, that means we still have over two billion cups that are not being recycled, and therefore still contributing to that that littering challenge, littering challenge we we just outlined. So, positive progress, huge improvement on where the situation was a few years ago, but nonetheless, still much work to do.
0: And abandoned boats are also a nuisance and a source of pollution, opening the potential to engage with boat makers.
2: Boating depends on a, on a healthy ocean and, and healthy waterways. You I know, mean, very few of us want to go go boating on a, a stagnant lake or a, a lake or waterway that's um, has very little fish or, or kind of marine life within it. So there's it's kind of in, an interdependency that exists there, but, but clearly inherently boating is also polluting. You know, whether it's coming out of the back of the the boats internal combustion engine, or very often the, the end of life disposal of those boats has been less than ideal in the past. So maybe just to break apart those two aspects, that the, the engines maybe first of all, because as I alluded to, those are inherently polluting, and also running against a, I guess, an, an unfortunate consumer trend, which is that consumers are increasingly favoring higher horsepower engines, and are increasingly hanging more of those higher horsepower engines off the back of the bigger boats that they're purchasing. So you know, one of the big beneficiaries of the, the COVID enforced staycations of the past 12 months has been the boating industry. Um, unfortunately, but those who are buying boats, as I said, are buying typically buying bigger boats with bigger engines and, and hanging bigger engines off the back. So while well, the industry, and in particular, some of those companies that we are engaging with, have made some very significant strides over the past few years in terms of producing more fuel efficient and environmentally friendly engines, those engines are still inherently still polluting and because they're bigger and because there are more of them hanging off the back of boats the aggregate level of emissions is still greater than would be the case um, if you're just looking at the, the engines in of themselves so but that's a a bit of a, a natural tension that that's there and I think that the, the, the um, engine manufacturers and boat companies are acutely aware of it and are trying to do a lot more around electrification given that electrification is clearly a an issue we're all very familiar with in the auto industry hasn't really translated to the the boating industry as yet, and it hasn't translated because of that consumer preference that I talked to. But there is a, a lot of work that's underway to get a, I guess, full electrification of, of everything else that's on the boat beyond the engine. And then I think the, the engine issue um, will be something that will take a little little bit longer to resolve, and I'm clear that um, requires a bit more consumer awareness and bringing the consumer with, uh, bringing the consumer on the journey, so to speak. But on the other other issue of end of life, just to very briefly go through that one, because as much as boating um, can can perhaps sort itself out in terms of the the in-use side of things, one of the perennial issues in particular in the United States has been the responsible disposal of boats when consumers want to dispose of them when they're fed up with them after 10, 20 years or so. Um, And that principally principally relates to fibreglass vessels, which are, about 50 or 60% of the, the, the totality of boat production in the US. Um, and very often, either those those boats are taken to landfill or more often the case, they're, they're simply just disposed of on waterways, ignored and just dumped for the kind of rotting, I suppose. Um, and that's, that's no great surprise when you look at the number of US states where it costs the owner somewhere in excess of $3,000 to take their boats to a, a specified location for dismantling and then end of life um, dismantling. That's, that's clearly a hefty sum at the, the end of um, a period of time when the, the consumer has lost interest in the, in the product itself. So it's no great surprise they, they dispose of it irresponsibly, which creates an isol, but the engines and the, the other parts of the, the boat tend to then release harmful chem- chemicals into the waterways, which are obviously detrimental to marine
0: life. It's clear that while biodiversity is moving up the agenda, this will become more and more of an issue as time goes on.
2: It is rising up agendas very rapidly. And I think that's in large part because of all the events of the past 12 months that have made um, man's encroachment on on the natural space and, and the implications thereof clearly much more self-evident. Um, but equally, there's been a number of um, very significant reports published by the OECD and other well-established and well-esteemed bodies that have really painted the, the interdependence between biodiversity and climate change and indeed um, economic models. And therefore, I think that there is a greater appreciation of companies' impacts on biodiversity, and sub- subsequently, the the impact of the loss of biodiversity on companies' um, sustainable business models. So, I think a number of companies are are becoming more acutely aware and trying to wrestle with that agenda. I, I think what is difficult from it, both an engagement perspective and indeed, I suppose, a corporate action perspective, is that so much of the the impact on biodiversity is wound up with. Government tax reliefs, government tax incentives, uh, or in the case of forest clearing in the Amazon, for, for example, taking place with um, implicit support perhaps of governments. Or it's very often associated with um, suppliers who are very far up the the upstream part of a, a company's supply chain and therefore it, it tends to be very opaque and therefore influence t- can be more diminished or at least transparency can be more diminished. So it's, it's not an easy issue for companies to grapple with, but I, I think many are beginning to give it sufficient... Uh, beginning to give it the the sort of thought that it warrants and deserves.
0: I'm Ethan Devitt, and thank you for listening to this podcast on water and biodiversity.
1: Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Some of the guests featured on this podcast are not employees of Federated Hermes. The views and opinions expressed by these guests are their own personal views. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.